This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Affirmative action policies on college campuses have once again come under scrutiny in the wake of reports the Trump administration is considering investigating if white applicants are being discriminated against. CU Boulder has a unique perspective. The university crafted a policy that reduced relying on race in admissions, in part because of a 2008 state ballot initiative. Patrick O'Rourke is legal counsel for the University of Colorado system, and Matthew Gertner is a research scientist. He helped craft the admission policies used today at CU Boulder. Welcome to the program. Morning. Hey, Patrick, uh, can race be used today as a factor in admission to CU Boulder? Um, I don't think that race can be used as a factor that is determinative of someone's admission to Boulder or really as the the deciding factor for uh, admission to universities across the country. I think that the landscape is one where it is something that the courts have recognized that it is a legitimate educational interest to try to have a diverse group of people involved in higher education, um, but that it is permissible to be race-conscious, really, rather than race-based. I see. So it's, it's part of the entire pie in terms of admitting someone to college. Yeah, the courts have clearly recognized that having a diverse class of students continues to remain a compelling state interest, but that they're also going to be subject to to constitutional scrutiny whenever you are using uh, those type of criteria. And so you have to be able to make sure that your programs are well tailored and that they are designed to make sure that you are not using impermissible characteristics to and design your admissions. There have been recent challenges to using race in college admissions in Michigan and Texas, and there's still a bit of uncertainty about the scope of the investigation the Trump administration is considering. But but what makes you certain CU could stand up to a challenge from a white high school applicant who says they're being discriminated against because of their race? Well, we're pretty confident that the way that our admissions policy is set up is different than the programs that have been challenged. And you have to remember that even those programs that have been challenged have continued to find that there is judicial support for the notion that diversity is important. But CU has really approached it from the standpoint of not looking at race as being a deciding factor and employing more of a holistic admissions process. We know from some of the research that's been done, including the research that is involved CU, um, that there are a lot of things that can be done to look at how do you build a, a diverse and inclusive class, and that can include socioeconomic status, that can include life experience, those can include a lot of things, and we believe that a holistic admissions process like the ones that we employ are not going to be subject to an easy legal challenge if somebody wanted to claim that they were denied admission, and we haven't faced that type of challenge. How how did the state legislature help guide you in, in creating this 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 process? Um, we do have indexes and other composites that are given to us by the 
General Assembly so that we can be able to determine academic preparation for admission to each of our campuses. When it comes to the details of our admissions policies, um, those are really more institutionally based, and that's probably appropriate because all of the institutions of higher education around Colorado they have different programs, they have different needs, and that because of it, um, figuring out how they build their their classes and make sure that they're getting the a good mix of students that advances the goals of the program is really something that we're glad we're able to look at at the campus level. Yeah, that diversity that you, that you spoke of. Uh, Matthew, the ballot initiative we referred to, Amendment 46, would have banned affirmative action across the state in employment and higher education, among other areas. Before we talk specifically a bit more about what you did, how big a challenge was it to find a way to reduce reliance on race as a factor in admissions, but yet ensure that you embrace diversity? Yeah, you know, I think the important thing to note here is when the uh, ballot initiative, when it was on the ballot and it was polling fairly favorably in, in 2008, um, in my initial conversations with the university, um, we did not go specifically for um, a proxy for race, something that could get us around the ballot initiative. Um, mm. What we did was start with the university's mission. And I think what Patrick said is really important is that the details of these policies are institution-based because institutions have different missions and different priorities. And Colorado's, CU Boulder's, is one of inclusive excellence, right? And that's, that was true then, and it's true today, um, including groups and individuals who historically have faced institutional barriers because the quality of education is enhanced and enriched by a diverse campus community, and the entire campus benefits from a participation in a multicultural community. And that's very clear in CU Boulder's uh, mission statement. And so what we did was sort of take that and say, well, that implies a certain admissions policy, and our admissions policy should reflect our values. So how do we measure those concepts and how do we incorporate those measures in the admissions process? And that's really where we started. That's how we came up with metrics of disadvantage and overachievement. Um, we did have reason to suspect that they would cushion the blow of a, a ban on race-based affirmative action, but the primary objective was to measure the traits that Colorado values in students and reward those traits um, for its applicants. And so you created metrics, right? I explain what those are and, and how they impacted uh, potential applicants to your to your colleges. Right. So we uh, developed two metrics, two indices, actually. There's a, a disadvantage index, and the disadvantage index roughly estimates the um, effect of socioeconomic disadvantage on an applicant's likelihood of applying to and enrolling in a selective four-year college. What we know from the research is that um, even holding constant academic credentials from high school, socioeconomic disadvantage can reduce the likelihood that a student is even going to apply to a selective university, and once admitted, that student will even enroll at the selective university, owing to just sort of differences in cultural capital and differences in information that these students have. And so that was one piece. We wanted to find the students who had faced institutional barriers that few other students had faced because they would bring a unique perspective to campus. And that's something that Colorado really values, right? 
The other piece of inclusive excellence is excellence, right? And so what we wanted to do was take a closer look at high school GPA and admissions test scores like SAT and ACT and try to remove the influence of socioeconomic status on those measures, which has been demonstrated in the research literature over and over again. They're, they're highly correlated with parents' education and income and a number of other factors. And so the overachievement index is slightly different. It basically looks at the extent to which an applicant's grades and test scores exceed those from peers who come from similar socioeconomic backgrounds. And so you see students who have SAT scores, for example, that are two or 300 points above the average SAT scores of students from similar backgrounds. And those are students that Colorado believes deserve additional consideration in the admissions process. So, And so... Yeah, go ahead. No, no. I, I want to. Is that where the term academic disadvantage came from? I mean, is that all a part of that where you're separating socioeconomic issues with the academic performance of a student? Yes, that's that's right. What we wanted to do was try to place applicants on an even socioeconomic playing field, at least for these metrics. And for, for these indices, as Patrick mentioned, it is holistic review. They do not override other components of the admissions process. But they do reveal certain traits about applicants that, um, absent these indices, are a little bit more difficult to detect systematically in the admissions process. So they add a little bit of quantitative rigor to what admissions officers have been doing for a long time, which is trying to recognize achievement in light of circumstance. Can I jump in on that, too? Sure. Which is that approaching it in the manner that Matthew just described also allows us to better be able to find and students who have the potential to be successful at the university. And so that the holistic type of approach that he's mentioning and really looking for that type of inclusive excellence puts us in a position where that also helps not just with admissions, but with retention. Because if you admit somebody into a university and you have not taken into account their ability to to be successful in a in a selective environment, you may not be able to retain them. So that it sets them up for failure just, in a sense. Yeah, it's not just a question of admissions, but it's really being able to look at academics in a way that you are trying to create a student body that can be successful as well. So it's not just a question of admissions; it's a question of the entire academic experience. Now, Matthew, in two thousand nine yeah. and ten, after the ballot initiative failed, you did experiments using these metrics. Can you briefly explain how they worked and what the results were and and how you actually experimented with these applicants? Yeah, yeah. And and they uh, relate to the the point that Patrick just brought up um, about the likelihood of admission and then also academic success in college. And so uh, the first couple of experiments involved uh, the impact of these indices on admissions decisions. And so what we did was we randomly assigned um, applicants to different admissions officers, and in some cases, the applicant's race and uh, name, all racial identifying characteristics, were removed from the application. And what we wanted to understand was if you were to switch from a race-conscious system to a only a class-conscious system, uh, what would be the impact? on the likelihood of admission for both socioeconomically disadvantaged students and racial and ethnic minorities. And what we found actually uh, surprised us a little bit in that 
um, the likelihood of admission for socioeconomically disadvantaged students rose significantly with the implementation of these these indices. And that actually hmm. didn't surprise us that much uh, because these indices were specifically designed to identify applicants fitting that profile. But in this initial experiment, what we also found was that the likelihood of acceptance admission for underrepresented minorities, that is African-American, Latino, and Native American students, increased with the uh, socioeconomic indices relative to a race-based system. Um, and then ultimately what we found is the best way to increase both socioeconomic and uh, racial and ethnic racial and ethnic diversity in the admissions process is to use both of these elements in concert, the indices and race, con race conscious admissions systems. And so, you know, one of the surprising uh, feature of that was that a class-based system could cushion or even sustain uh, racial and ethnic diversity. And so, you know, some people picked up on that finding and said, yes, class can replace race in the admissions uh, process. And I've had to sort of qualify those findings over and over again. Um, part of part of the explanation is that these indices uh, look at a lot of different applicant characteristics, so they're fairly nuanced. They look at parents' education, they look at income, they look at high school level factors like the size of the high school, poverty rate at the high school, whether the applicant comes from a single parent family. So they're a little bit more nuanced than some of the sort of you know top ten percent plans, top X percent plans that you see um, in other states. The other piece is that Colorado, um, in these experiments, did place a, a significant weight on identification under these indices. And that's, and that's really important. It's not uh, just how they, how they identified as, as... What do you mean by identified? Uh, so the students who were identified as severely disadvantaged or extraordinarily overachieving, who had very, very high values on these, on these metrics, uh, that was a strong consideration in the admissions process, right? Um, it, in some cases, could carry the same weight as a glowing letter of recommendation or, say, graduating in the top 5 or 10% of your class. Now, Matthew, uh, and that's really important. Yeah, I, I do want, I, I want to bring this up a little bit because, you know, according to CU Boulder's annual diversity report for the 2016-17 school year, undergrad enrollment was 24% diverse. The report says that was up 9% from a decade before, but in terms of specific numbers, in 2016, there were only 211 African-Americans who applied for admission and only 66 enrolled. For Hispanics, 1,355 applied and 525 enrolled. Do those figures constitute success in your mind in terms of the university's mission? I think they constitute progress. Uh, and so what you have to what you have to understand is that these admissions indices are one piece of the admissions process. And I learned this actually by working in the admissions office for about three years and understanding that the diversity puzzle on universities is about a lot more than just the admissions decision. The indices help with that. And you can see that through the experimental results. But there's also outreach. There's recruitment. There's getting students to apply. Once they're accepted, there's getting them to matriculate. And then there's supporting them once they are on campus. And so I think C CU and many other selective flagship universities across the country know that they have a way to go in terms of inclusivity and mm -hmm. access uh, and, and diversity. And so what we're looking at right now is progress toward a goal 
Uh, and that goal is, you know, still in front of us. We haven't reached it quite yet. Um, but it involves much more than tinkering with the admissions process. It's all about selling the university to students, getting them to matriculate once they've been accepted, and then supporting them once they're on campus so that they can graduate. Patrick, CU Boulder, as well as any number of schools across the country, talk about this, quote, holistic admissions process. That means looking at the entire person, but isn't that just a fancy term for working around potential complaints from people you're using, who say you're using affirmative action without actually calling it affirmative action? No, I I don't think that's a, okay. a, a fair characterization um, because if you were looking at really what the the original affirmative action challenges that went through the court systems were, they were really designed to to create numbers. Um, and what you just described, yeah, we still measure diversity in terms of the protected characteristics. And to answer your earlier question, I don't think that it, it does represent success where we are right now, but that part of it is, as we just heard, it's, it's part of progress, but we're also trying to change culture. And part of the culture we're trying to achieve is not just saying we need to admit a certain number of students. We want to be in a position where we're admitting students with the potential to succeed and that there's the ability to have a good class that represents a lot of the different segments of society. Under the indices that we were just talking about, you could have a white student who is disadvantaged in many ways, um, including the socioeconomic factors, and that under our admissions process, that student is benefited in the same way that a student who is of another protected class would be as well. So it's not just a code word for race-based admissions. It really is trying to change the way you think about admissions um, to provide access to, to people generally. Patrick, Matthew, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Patrick O'Rourke is legal counsel for the University of Colorado, and Matthew Gertner is a research scientist who helped craft the admission policies used today at the University of Colorado Boulder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's high time for local produce in Colorado right now, but to borrow a well-worn phrase, winter is coming. And the chill will soon take away our Pueblo chilies, Palisade peaches, and Rocky Ford melons. One town isn't surrendering to Colorado's short growing season. A community partnership in Bogosa Springs in southwest Colorado is working on a group of geothermal greenhouses using the city's namesake. Sally High helps lead the project. She joins us now by phone from downtown Pagosa Springs. Sally, welcome. Thank you. Why is your town the right place for a geothermal greenhouse? Pagosa Springs is well known for its um, hot springs spas. We have a large hot springs. It's unique in its um, um, expression. It is a, a geothermal chimney, and a geothermal aquifer underlies our entire town. We, um, in partnership with the town of Pagosa Springs, are using a town park um, site to build three geothermally heated greenhouses and teach about year-round 
agriculture, sustainable agriculture, and geothermal energy. And um, Pagosa Springs, um, while this is not unique, it is sort of unusual. We have a downtown heating district that is... um, that heats two of our three school campuses and um, over 30 businesses, melts our sidewalks, and um, we're just taking a step further. The town of Pagosa Springs still has geothermal fluid and lots of heat left over after those um, um, community activities, and so a group of local um, grassroots civic entrepreneurs, we call ourselves, decided to plan an educational park um, and put that water to use year-round. So, so you cut through all the red tape and, and you decided to, to build a geothermal greenhouse right in the middle of town. How did your group gain access to the hot spring water? So did you approach the city and be like, hey, this would be a cool idea? Actually, one of the original um, promoters of this idea was our former mayor, Ross Aragon. That core group that in 2008, 2009 began putting the puzzle pieces together to realize this project involves the town's mayor and um, considerable support from the town of Pagosa Springs, a a county commissioner, Michael Whiting, the school district, and a group of local um, business people, and um, and so that negotiation for the site for the geothermal water with the town of Pagosa Springs began all those um, all those years ago. Um, the funding for the project uh, took years <laughs> to to uh, realize. But, but we so- um, did considerable site development and preparation for the construction of these greenhouses. So they're done now. Well, at least one of them is done, correct? And one it's, of it's, them is it's, done. It's a That's geodesic correct. dome. I, I've seen it on, 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 a, on a city page. So it's the, the domes that are made of interlocking triangles. Isn't that right? That's correct. Um, that is uh, the product of a local company here in Pagosa Springs, Growing Spaces, manufactures these uh, growing domes. And we um, are using the, the largest of their um, Designs. It's a 42-foot diameter uh, round greenhouse. That's about 1,380 square feet on the floor uh, to begin our growing operations. Now, the uh, hot water is not from the hot spring itself, but from a town-owned well about 300 feet or so upstream from um, our park site, and uh, that resource is close to the surface. It's very hot and enjoys um, considerable pressure, which is um, necessary. Um, that artesian pressure is um, very necessary for successful geothermal development, and um, we pump heat exchanged water through the floor of the greenhouse. And um, when the town heating district is in operation, that is October to April, um, we use that geothermal water, the hot water, to heat um, 
pure water to heat, heat fresh water and pump it through the floor of our greenhouse. I see. And which last heats, year, which in our first um, in our first year, excuse me, um, the temperature never fell below about fifty six degrees on the coldest Rocky Mountain nights. So that allows you just to to grow essentially year round. That's correct. Now, the project came out of the Great Recession, uh, I, I heard. What did the economic picture look like in Pagosa Springs back back then? It was bleak, or perceptions uh, were, that it was um, um, a very weak economy. We are tourism-based, and we, ha- we have a lot of second homes. The um, construction industry suffered greatly. Uh, real estate sale, sales fell significantly. I was teaching school at the time, and I became involved in this project as a liaison between the local school district and uh, what would become a nonprofit um, organization. And our school district lost students, and we saw some businesses closed. We saw some empty um, retail windows and um, the the nature of our town in that regard um, sort of shifted. Now, we're hardy folks over here on the western slope, and so um, we are um, not in those dire economic straits today. I heard recently that we have hosted over 17,000 tourists through Pagosa Springs um, this summer, this tourist season, and uh, some days down at the greenhouse, it seems like every tourist in town is coming to visit (laughs) this greenhouse and learn more about our project. So So these are are positive and exciting times. So it's education, drawing tourism, all all, all the above, And, and you're growing tomatoes right now, but you know, you can grow tomatoes, continue growing them into the winter. Does that mean you could also grow tropical crops? Let's, you know, let's say in the summer, maybe uh, Pagosa Springs papayas or something like that because of that <laughs> constant uh, temperature in that greenhouse. Is it possible? Yes. Um, is it practical? Maybe not. Um, we A good are... tourist draw, maybe. <laughs> um, believe me, the size of our um <laughs> Tomato plants is uh, uh, quite a tourist attraction. We grow a variety of, um, of vegetables that you might see in outdoor vegetable gardens, but of course, um, our high altitude and our arid short growing season um, doesn't allow us to have a lot of success, even with all our season extending tricks um, in growing outdoor gardens at least not as much success as we're witnessing here in the uh, in the greenhouse we're growing lots of different uh, vegetables and we have plans to transition to some um what i think are are more exotic uh crops for our altitude uh grapes for example um our grape arbors have been constructed they're absolutely beautiful um fig trees are a rather sure thing fig i know trees that because in a greenhouse yeah yes um uh, other growing dome um gardeners um are producing figs in their hmm. greenhouse now papayas um <laughs> are a long shot is it possible yes 
Um, I don't know if we want to be that experimental at this point in time. We're just a few months old. We began planting this greenhouse in November of 2016. And so we haven't even been through a whole year of uh, growing cycle yet. Um, do, do you hope that this uh, people, project d- develops a model for local businesses? Do you want to see more of this? Or is it really just education and, and, and tourism? Absolutely. It's an economic driver, a downtown revitalization project. We're in partnership with our Region 9 economic development. Um, That is, we are an enterprise zone project um, designed to um, drive our economy um, and work our way out of being an enterprise zone um, in downtown Pagosa Springs. So our tagline is growing food and community with local energy. We're all about geothermal energy potential. We're all about water conservation and um, teaching about the um, implementation of the Colorado Water Plan. We are already teaching um, school children, 4-H, homeschooled um, groups, and we have a lot of adult participation. This year, our first year, we will have uh, conducted six lifelong learning workshops. Four of them are behind us, and we are currently planning the next two workshops um, the last will be before Thanksgiving, and then we'll plan next year's educational um, programming activities. And so that's going to keep moving on in Pagosa Springs. Sally, thanks so much for joining us. Sally High is president of the Board for the Geothermal Greenhouse Partnership. The group is building domed greenhouses in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. They'll supply fresh fruits and vegetables to the town year-round. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Poetry can be hard to decipher, but that's not the case with Jody Hollander's poems. Hers are raw, descriptive, and full of family strife. Hollander lives in Avon, Colorado. Her new poetry collection, My Dark Horses, will be released next week. She speaks now with my colleague, CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Jody, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Delighted to be here. Many of your poems center on your mother, and there's a lot in them about your childhood. What motivated you to take all of this on? Well, you know, I was raised in a family of professional classical musicians, and so music was really everywhere. Um, My father was a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, a professor of music, my mother a professional cellist, my sister a soprano, and my brother a violinist. Mm. And so really, you know, the the conversations at dinner always focused around classical music. And so that was really the backdrop of my childhood was um, not only listening to classical music, but talking about classical music. And so um, when I began writing poetry, it just sort of emerged as as a natural topic. And in in a sense, you're the only one who didn't turn out to be a musician. We'll talk about how you yeah. use music in, in your work. But um, a lot of it is filled with strife um, in terms of your relationships with your mom and the rest of your family. And let's have you read one of your poems to get a feel for your writing. Um, let's start with uh, The Fat Lady's Arms. It's on page 21. 
Great. Sure. The Fat Lady's Arms. Mother liked to weigh herself each morning to ensure she stayed at exactly 90 pounds. She'd smirk at those who buttered up their bread or drank those horrible high-calorie juices. And she certainly never ate desserts or sweets. After all, no one liked people who were fat. Like father, who always spread that mayonnaise on white bread, then piled on meat and cheese. Or sometimes, after returning late from work, he'd gorge himself on Skippy's peanut butter, spoonful after rich, delicious spoonful, till he'd managed to scrape the whole jar clean. Once, after she returned from an early morning swim, Mother discovered Father's stash of treats. She rounded us kids into the kitchen, then holding up the sinful hostess wrapper, declared she could no longer love our father. Have you seen that gut? she asked us, chuckling. After that, Brother began teasing Sister. He kept insisting her arms were getting flabby. Look, they're jiggling in the backseat of the car, he taunted one day as mother sped us to school. They look like a fat lady's arms, he went on and on, until sister, who almost never uttered a word, finally erupted into a stream of violent tears. Make him stop, mom, make him stop, she cried. But mother only turned up the classical music and continued zooming dangerously down the road. This offers a pretty damning view of your mother as being superficial, not very sensitive. A lot of your poetry about her has that tone. How vivid are those childhood memories? Yeah, I mean, uh, gosh, childhood is so tough. Um, I think particularly for anyone who's who's sensitive, sort of navigating one's way not only through family, but also through adolescence, um, through social pressures. And in the case of my mother, um, I think she was unwell and so uh, psychologically unwell. And so it was it was quite challenging, you know, having her as my primary role model growing up. Mm, yeah. And, and um, you know, to be watching her and thinking, you know, is this the proper way to act? Is this what a mom should be saying to her kids? Yeah. One has to sort of relearn those lessons, I think, as an adult. Um, well, I certainly did. One of the things I noticed immediately about your poetry is that it's just so accessible. It reads like prose and almost like a story. Mm. And I wonder if that's intentional. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, there's a lot of poetry being written today that's uh, that's hard to understand and um, maybe doesn't effectively communicate to its audience. Um, and to me, the whole point of poetry is to communicate. And so I think narrative is a really powerful way to communicate with one's audience. So I do like telling stories and I like telling them through poetry. Um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't see the point in writing a poem that that no one would understand. And you talk about communicating uh, to your readers. Did you ever communicate to your mom about some of those feelings? 
I I think over the course of my childhood, I'm sure I did. Um, but as you know, as a kid, one only has so much say and one only has so much power. And I think the real power sort of comes back to me as a poet, as an adult, being able to to write these stories um, and tell them through poetry and sort of ironically tell them through musical poetry. We'll talk about that in a minute, but um, you're, I want you to read another poem. Sure. Um, your mother got cancer, um, and some of your poetry is about how that affected your relationship. Mm. Um, could you read Skyping with my mother? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, Skyping with my mother. When I first saw her on the computer screen, she seemed gentle in her nightgown, even sweet. Her hair was neatly brushed, pulled back with a cloth. She sat tall in her bed, moved the computer close. All day I had been preparing for this, all night I hadn't slept, wondering who would first hit and call, how long I'd last before bursting into tears when she'd look inside me and ask, why aren't you here? She had plastic tubes in her nose, vases filled with carnations near her bed. You look beautiful, she said. She looked beautiful. This was not the woman I knew, not the woman I had fought with all those years. How are you feeling, I asked, watching her look at herself in the small box, then look at me, filling up her entire screen from across the ocean, and for once she didn't answer me, but insisted, tell me about England, tell me about England. And this was at a time, um, about a time when you were living in England. And I wonder how your mother's illness changed your feelings about her. Hmm. Gosh, it's, you know, when someone gets um, a diagnosis of terminal cancer, it's it's so shocking um, for that person and for everyone um, in their immediate family. Um, so it was a really sort of powerful time between us. Um, and I was living in England at that point, actually studying to be a poet, um, when she became ill. And I think I was hoping that there might be some some resolution, but I, unfortunately, I think um, her becoming ill complicated things. In what way? I think she realized she didn't have very long to live, um, and it, I don't think we were ultimately able to sort of resolve our relationship, um, sadly, before she passed. You come from a family of musicians, um, as you've said, and use a lot of musical techniques in your work. And can you talk a little bit about how that comes out in your poetry? Mm. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, one of the questions that I'm asked most commonly is, what is the difference between um, a poem and a short story or a poem and a piece of prose? And that's such a good question because it seems in a lot of contemporary poetry that there really isn't a difference, um, that, that oftentimes poets are 
um, sort of chopping up lines of prose and um, arranging them on the page, and and that's poetry. But but for me, there's a very important difference. Um, the difference is the musicality um, within the poetry, and so um, that means not only a metrical system, which is um, a system of stresses and non-stresses within the line, but also the use of alliteration and assonance and really just having an ear to sort of listen to how the words sound next to each other. Jody, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Jody Hollander's new collection of poetry is called My Dark Horses and will be released next week. Hollander lives in Avon, Colorado. She spoke with CPR's Andrew Dukakis. You can find some of her poems at cprnews.org. A long-running attraction in Golden... Heritage Amusement Park is fighting for survival against its landlord, Marietta Materials. The amusement park's owner, Alan Bader, says Marietta has been trying to shut down Heritage for the past four years. The two sides are now in arbitration. CPR reporter Anne Maria Wan has been following the story and talked about the latest developments. So what are they fighting over? So the park owner, Alan Bader, claims that Marietta is trying to drive him out of business. He cites things like the fact that Marietta has removed the big Heritage Square sign from the road near the entrance, which Bader says makes it appear that they're already closed. And if you go there now, there's a huge makeshift banner that they put up instead. He also says the owners demolished their public restrooms and have stopped maintaining common areas, forcing the park to hire a company to pick up trash. Basically, he thinks Marietta is trying to sabotage the park. And it's clear to me that they are looking to make life as difficult as possible for us. And what does Marietta say about those accusations? Well, I've reached out to the company for their side, but they haven't responded. Is there any understanding about why Marietta wants the park off the property? They own a quarry next door to Heritage Amusement Park. Marietta is a mining company. And from the best I can tell, they want a bigger buffer of undeveloped land around their facility. And to do that, the park has to go. There used to be a whole bunch of other businesses there. But when their leases ran out a few years ago, Marietta chose not to renew them. And the amusement park's lease is not up until 2039. Bader says Marietta did make him a buyout offer, but that wasn't good enough. And so he's decided to stay put. So where do things stand now? Bader and Marietta started arbitration proceedings in June. Bader is accusing Marietta of being in breach of their lease and generally making it difficult for Heritage to do business. And Marietta is actually moving to evict the park, claiming that it's unsafe. And we're expecting a decision in this case in late September. Now, for people who have not been to Heritage Amusement Park, why is it important? Well, it'll be the end of an era for a lot of people who grew up going to this park in the summer. The place is almost 60 years old, and it's got a really interesting history. It was originally designed as a space-themed park called Magic Mountain. And this was only a couple years after Disneyland in California was built. And the vice president of Disneyland actually came to Colorado to basically recreate Disneyland in Golden. And it was designed by art directors from MGM and Disney. So if it goes away, a lot of this history goes with it. CPR's Anne-Maria Wad and Mike Lamb talking about the showdown between Heritage Square Amusement Park and its landlords.
In 1886, a young woman from Ohio homesteaded in Prowers County in the southeast corner of the state. Today, the ranch Elzada Carn started covers some 5,000 acres, and it's still in the family. The Rocking 7K Ranch and others will receive a Centennial Farm designation at the State Fair in Pueblo today. The honor is presented by History Colorado for families who have worked the same land for a century or more. Elzada's granddaughter, 87-year-old Catherine Gron, lives on the ranch. She says her grandmother moved west from Ohio because of tuberculosis. She had two uncles out here in Colorado, and they said, Elzada, this dry climate is good for tuberculosis. So she got on the train and came to Grenada. Grenada was a booming little town then, and there was a, a big hotel there. And that's where Elzada stayed. And to get her some of that healthy Colorado air... Her uncle took the 17-year-old on his four-day mail route with his mule team. Eventually, he said, well, Alzada, you just well drive this mail route for me. So she did. Her health improved, and when she was old enough, her uncle told her to put in for a homestead outside Grenada. So she said, I walked the creek until I found the place that I wanted a homestead, and she staked out a homestead. But when her mother found out Alzada was homesteading... She got a little worried. It sounded kind of permanent to her. She came to Colorado, collected her daughter, and paid off the homestead, took her back to Ohio. Well, back in Ohio, Elzada married her sweetheart, George Carn, and the couple headed to Florida, where they lived for a while. But when her husband got malaria, Elzada knew exactly where they could go. And Elzada said, I know where you can get well. They came to Colorado. The couple came to Colorado, had two sons, Leo and Louis, Catherine's father. In 1935, something terrible happened, though, after Elzada and Leo went to, went to town for a visit. It was a bad storm. It was raining real hard. But when it let up, you know how farm people are. We've got to go home and do our chores. So they started home. Ten miles out of Grenada, we don't know exactly what happened. Their car did not wash away. There was footprints leading down to the creek. So we presume they walked down to see if they could cross the creek. It wasn't a bridge. There was a slab, you know, like there used to be. And evidently a head of water caught them and they drowned. After the flood, Catherine's parents were determined to stay, so her family built a stone house and raised their four children on the ranch. I loved the cattle the most. And I loved my horse. And me and my twin brother were the cowboys. But it wasn't just cattle that the two young ranch hands were in charge of. We had 5,000 turkeys back in the days when they didn't have pole sheds and they didn't feed them antibiotics. We raised them out on the range, kind of uh, like sheep herders, I guess. Early in the morning, we'd take a horse and go with the turkeys because early in the morning, turkeys will go out and hunt grasshoppers. Wish we had a bunch now because we are overrun with grasshoppers. And the ranch had another special feature that Catherine remembers from her childhood. My uncle built a, a big stone tank. It was about 10 foot deep and 30 foot across. We used it to irrigate a huge garden because we canned all of our food. But it was also the neighborhood swimming pool. Catherine Gron still stays in the stone house that her father built, and she'll be at the state fair tonight with her family to receive the Centennial Farm designation for the ranch that her grandmother first homesteaded in 1886. We've posted photos of Elzada and her descendants, along with a full list of this year's Centennial Farms at cprnews.org. The Colorado State Fair opens today at the fairgrounds in Pueblo and runs through Labor Day.
And that's our show for today. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Our managing producer is Rachel Esterbrook. Producers Anthony Cotton, Andrew Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Stephanie Wolfe. Audio engineer Michael Hughes and Matt Hers. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.